1: Hello! Today we have Paul Maleri and everybody is very excited about our ex-cop interviews. So, we're going to be getting plenty of hard-hitting stories. We're going to be touching on the Essex boys. The one you just told me, the murder of Daniel Jones. Um, You were in the CID. And we were asking you earlier about police corruption, so we'll, we'll get your thoughts on that as well and I'm probably will sure. ask you about freemasons in the police as well yeah that's a, that's a big subject
2: yeah what was your life like before you started out as a cop then um born in 1965 29th of june um my dad was a military policeman uh he was doing active service in borneo i was born and he came back i was i think a year old by the time he got back to the uk borneo what's that like well i mean he was out there it was the indochinese crisis so he's out there you know literally out there they were out there fighting at the time it's one of those um things that probably never gets written about now but that's what was happening in the mid 60s he came back he joined the he joined the civilian police came out of the army joined the civilian police and uh, that was our life you know we were we were police through and through my my dad was a copper my uncles were coppers uh, my cousins a copper out in Ireland. I so had cousins in the police here. I had an uncle that joined the police in 1934. So it just shows you how far back it goes. So it's, it's quite entrenched into us as as a family. We we come from a an Irish background. Um, Same here, Sean Patrick. There you go. So um, yeah, so life life was good. I, I mean, I had a lot of fun in my formative years. You know, I joined the police at 21 great job i mean i had no intention to join the police um it was one of those things that when if someone says oh keep the you know you should do this you should do that you just think oh actually i don't want to do it and then all of a sudden it came up and i thought oh do you know what i'm going to do that because i was working for my grandfather he was a plasterer um that was that was tough you know cold days picking cat crap out of the sand and taking the ice off the water butts and i thought oh do you know what i am i'm going to join the police and i got in Um, armistice day 1986 I went through my interview got accepted joined the police on the 29th December 1986 my first posting I went to Braintree May the 10th was the first time I travelled in a police car with a blue light on how do I remember this a man had just tried to take his own life and um, when the ambulance crew turned up they were wearing gloves and it was you know it was a bit unnerving and it turns out that this chap had just been diagnosed with HIV, you know, so you're talking about a different era. I joined the police when life on Mars was still in existence. Yeah. You still had a culture of, um, well, let me tell you the first major incident I ever worked on March the 31st, 1989, a family had been abducted and, it was a bank robbery basically they'd taken a member of the family and they were going to rob the bank <clears throat> excuse me unbeknownst to me i was being set up in a prank you know when you could do you could do things like that and i was being i was being set up to go and meet a a sex offender it was a, it was a full-on prank and then the phone call came on to say that we were going to have we were all going to go to this incident i turn up the sio sits there he says oh mr maliri Yes, sir. He said, I know your father. Yes, sir. He said, uh, can you cook? I'm thinking, what's that got to do with anything? Can I cook? See, I can cook. So he said, okay, I want 20 breakfasts. And I had to cook 20 breakfasts for the inquiry team. Okay. And on the Friday, they'd give me money. I'd have to go up to the local Sainsbury's. I'd buy a bottle of whiskey and a load of cigars. And that's how they'd finish the week. You know, so it's a, now... Thank god it's a completely different world but that's how that's how it was in the early days. What breakfast did you have to cook? Full one, a full English. A full, full English. Full English for 20 people. <laughs> so we've got a lot of American viewers
1: who may not be aware of the ingredients in a full <laughs> English. What what's in that?
2: Real sausages, not the American sausages. <laughs> Real bacon, not the American bacon. Uh, fried eggs, black pudding. They don't know what that is. I don't easy. <laughs> P- pig's blood and sawdust. Yeah. <laughs> um, baked beans, toast, you name it, they had the whole lot and I had to cook for 20 people.
1: Wow. Would you say that because law enforcement was in your DNA, you had realistic assumptions or were you idealistic
2: when you joined? Um, I knew what was happening. I knew what the world was about. I'd been around as well, you know, I'd worked on building sites, but I knew what law enforcement was about. Um, yeah i i i had no preconce- i had preconceived ideas i you know i wasn't assuming anything i knew i knew what it was about and i there was a welcome because i came from that policing background um i was working with people that had been in the police with my dad so it sort of paved the way for me to a certain degree and going on the cid was always going to you know i was always going to be a detective there's quite a lot of police in the Freemasons. Did that apply to your family and you? Yeah, and I am a Freemason.
1: You are a Freemason.
2: Yeah, you can ask ask away. You know, I've got I've got no nothing to hide. No, I'm a pretty poor one. I'm not <laughs> actually a member of any <laughs> any lodge at the moment. But um, you're going to ask me, was there any any corruption, or did I ever encounter any favoritism? Well, James was asking about corruption. What was your corruption
1: question? Yeah, there's
2: corruption,
0: bribery from big drug
2: dealers. If there is it's well investigated, okay? The, the the police service run a really good anti-corruption units now. And, and when I say good, technology has now moved into the favour of the police. Yeah, so that, so if there is corruption, then nine times out of ten, the police are on it. And, and I have experienced it. I've been present when corrupt officers have been dealt with, and rightfully so. You know, you can't have one rule for one and one for the other. I'm afraid that's a bit draconian, but um, that's how it goes. Would you say that Masonic
1: officers advance faster than non Masonic? Not a chance. (laughs) Not a chance.
2: I've didn't do me any favours. That's that's you know didn't do any of my friends any favours. It's got. Do you know what? You've got this um, idea that Masonic movement the Catholic Guild, all these different things. Absolutely not. I never benefited one iota from it and I'm not as we- not aware of anybody else that did either. Did you have to do any bizarre
1: ceremonies or learn any secret handshakes? Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs>
2: but I'm not going to divulge them here. <laughs> it's, a, it's a society with secrets. It's not a secret society. And... What you've got to remember is the Masonic movement goes back hundreds of years, and the sanctity of that is because of the history. Do you like history? Oh, I'm fascinated by history. Are you a Mason? Edward? No, I'm not
1: a Mason. Edward Gibbons, The Rise, and what was it? Fall and of the Roman Empire is one of my
2: favorite books. Is it? Yeah. Well, if you like history, the Masonic movement is all about history, okay? That's what it is, and it's about helping your fellow man. But that is no different to any other club that you're a member of. If you're a member of a golf club, you will go to the electrician in the golf club. If you're a member of the Masons, you may go to the electrician who's a member of the Masons. Nothing more, nothing less. Why do you think there are so many conspiracy theories about Masons? Because what people don't know, they make up. So you've you've probably experienced it in your life. People have preconceived ideas about what actually happens behind closed doors, what your life is about. They don't they make assumptions before they actually speak to the person. And that's why there are these conspiracy theories. I see. Okay, so
1: in nineteen eighty seven you met your first murderer. What was that case about?
2: So um I was in the custody suite at Braintree. Now you've got to remember Braintree Police Station is a very or the old police station was very, very old, archaic, in fact um man gets brought into custody and he wanted rabbit and his wife prepared him chicken he flipped and he killed her that was my first the first murderer that i ever met
1: had he shown any warning
2: signs leading up to that oh listen you're talking about a different era <laughs> there was there was no um intelligence system was completely different there was no domestic violence register there was nothing like that this you're talking about Was this? 1987? Was it Thatcher? Yuppies? The crash, stock market crash? But you're talking about those things, you know, Ford Fiestas, Ford, you know. Cocaine Charlies and all that stuff. XR2s. The prodigy hadn't even been thought of at that point, I don't think. So, you know, it's a a different, (laughs) it was a different era. Yeah, yeah. So you arrived then and what is the scene like for this murder? I didn't go to the scene on that one. Okay. No, 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 no. He got brought into custody. That's my first murderer that I ever met. Yeah. Okay. Were you um, interrogating him? No. I was literally, I was literally the the new boy in the station, and it's right. Go and stand with this man, and I had to go and meet and greet this old boy. He's probably dead now himself. And meet and greet him. He gets booked into, the, and then you had to stand outside the cell and keep a keep a watch on him so that you know he didn't harm himself or anything like that. But you're talking about a toilet. You're talking about a a, a cell where the toilet seat's made out of wood and there's porcelain. You know, it's a wooden bench in there. You've got a cast iron door, a heavy set door um, with a little peep hole. You know, it's a real tiled walls. Completely different, completely different era.
1: So a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a serial killer from prison. He phoned in from prison. Wow. Killed over 50 people. His criminal profile was also in a conference with him. And the criminal profile, like makes friends with these people and gets them to reveal where more bodies are so families can have closures and stuff like that. So this guy was like a jolly... The serial killer was like a jolly fellow, cracking jokes, likes to go on his holidays. He was a truck driver, had a girlfriend, lived a completely normal life. But when he was driving his truck around, if a sex worker approached and she was rude, he'd say, go away. If she wouldn't go away, he'd say, get in, snap her neck, throw in the back. Wow. He he did that over 50 times. And he only got caught because he ended up doing it in front of someone. And that someone had sex with the corpse and the DNA was found. That guy was arrested and he gave up the killer. But my question is, talking to this guy, he's just like, he was just like a normal person. The profiler said, serial killers aren't like what you see in the movies. They're just normal people living normal lives, but they do this thing. What's your experience and interpretation
2: of killers? So, yeah, you're quite right. Some of them are charming people. If 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 you if if you can imagine that some people have done it in a fit of passion, fit of peak, you know, where they've um, stabbed their partner during a domestic violence. Some are pure evil, and their evilness has been. This isn't the first time they've been evil. It might be the first time they've killed somebody, but it's not the first time that they've actually been evil. Um, but but some of them are very matter of fact, you know, put a pillow across their face, um, you know, all the all those types of things, you know. And but but I find them fascinating. I I really do find I find crime fascinating full stop. You know, why does somebody steal a pint of milk? Why do they take the hubcap off of a? a Ford Capri, whatever it was, which was the first case that I actually dealt with. But I find them fascinating. And and yes, they are evil because they've killed somebody, but I've previously said it's not my job to hate somebody. My job at that point was to find out the truth and what had gone on and provide the facts to the SIO, the uh, Crown Prosecution Service, whoever it may be. But you've got to remember, I was a a detective constable. I was a worker ant. A major investigation team comprises of so many different people from the SIO all the way down, inquiry teams, um, exhibit teams, forensic recovery, family liaison. job. I mean, that is an awful job to do, and I did that for a number of years. That's, that's a terrible job, but it's a necessary part of the role. So if you're watching this, one, I hear that serial
1: killer phone call, I'll try to remember to put it in the description box. If I don't, it's serial killer, phone call, Delmas Colvin is the guy's name, uh, if you want to search that. So you're saying that there's a variety of killers then? Yeah. Some are cool, calm, collected, some crimes of passion. There's a whole range.
2: But you've got to remember that it is the taking of a person's life, whatever way you look at it. So a murder is a murder is a murder. It's just the, the different technique that is used. And you know, it's some of them are absolutely brutal. They're all, you know, they've all got a, a, a cold side to it. Taking somebody's life is absolutely outrageous. But um, you know, it, it is fascinating, and it is—it's been going on for hundreds of years, thousands of years.
1: Yeah, I met some crime of passion guys in prison, and they were very well behaved and completely remorseful. And they'd lived normal lives, had a business, wife, kids, came home one day, wife is in the bed with the pool cleaner, grabs his gun, bam, bam, both dead, just like that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Just snaps. And, and, and the ramifications of that, your life changes completely. So it's not only about, it's about your kids' lives, the whole thing. So when there's a family unit involved, it just has a massive impact on them. So did you get to the point where you were
1: interrogating murderers? Yeah. And what kind of insane uh, stories have you got from from those people like how how did they try and mislead you
2: and trick you and I think I think the the most frustrating part is obviously somebody's got you've got the right to silence, haven't you? So they'll sit there and they'll be all very quiet and they won't say a word and then as you leave you know, for, and then they'll engage you in conversation as you as you walk out. They will start talking to you, but they know that their lawyer will be sitting there and telling them to say absolutely nothing. And then as you walk out, they'll start to engage you. But there's there's been all sorts. You know, there's been some real. Um, I think that I think the one the most frustrating. I, I interviewed a, a man called Stuart Campbell, who's still locked up um, for the murder of Daniel Jones. Her body's never been found, and I would. For them, and that, and that, this is the frustrating thing. For the, he's been found guilty. He's been in in prison since I think two thousand and one, there or thereabouts. For them, they need to know where the where the body is, where the, their daughter is, so that they can have foreclosure. Um, that's one that's really you know really sticks in my mind. Could you explain that case then? How her murder came about and what what happened there? Well, she she was um, murdered by her uncle. And for months and months, it was one of the biggest cases in the UK at that time, you know, a a missing teenager, uh, pictures of her in all the media, fantastic family, fantastic coverage. Um, And technology's moved on, you know, over the years, the way that the police do their investigations, it's moved on and... um, If I remember rightly, they they used um, telephone data and all the other things, the the forensic data and what have you, and he was subsequently convicted of her murder. Uh, Is he denying it then? Yeah, well, he's saying, yeah, he's always pleaded his innocence, but of course, 20 years on, he's still languishing in in prison. Um, Isn't there an incentive for him to admit guilt and show remorse so he can get out? Yeah, and I'm but I'm not sure that it's applicable. I haven't looked out because I haven't kept up to speed with it, but I know that they were looking at the um some changes around that and I'm not sure it's applicable to his particular case. Right. What are the most heinous murders you've heard of? Uh well, there was a lady who was decapitated. By, walking down the road walking down the road walking down the road she was that mentally ill person who was supposed to be no it's her husband her husband husband decided that he was going to kill her in the street outside the school and uh, he decapitated her in the street that was that was quite a grim what was his motive it was was a jealousy uh, they'd split up if i remember rightly they'd split up and she wouldn't have him back and if if he couldn't have her then nobody else was going to and why outside of a school she'd just dropped the kids off it was a, it was a pinch point she he knew where she'd be at a particular time he'd gone and purchased the weapon sharpened it up gone along and and took her head off a pinch point is that law enforcement well no it just it was a um, it, no not, not I like that pinch point yeah, but that's where he knew she was going to yeah, be yeah
1: yeah
2: wow so yeah that that was pr- that's a, a grim event they're all grim they're all they're
1: all they're all
2: awful yeah.
1: All right. So going back then, so you've joined. I will the- tell you one more though. Sorry. Go for it,
2: please. <laughs> um, so there was a man by the name of Justin Chance who was um, starved. And this is horrendous. He was starved to death by uh, a group of people. That was absolutely awful. You know, he starved his to death. family, yeah, his family, he was held captive and he was starved to death. Who held him captive? I can't remember the guy's name now. And what was the motive behind that? just bullying bullying just it was pure bullying that was one of the things that they undertook but it was pure bullying was that within his family that he got no 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 he he'd been brought in by this guy was almost cult like i've forgotten his name the guy responsible but yeah it was almost cult like and as an inquiry team everything affects you you know you've got but we've all got a uh, the police have got a unique humour. They have got a unique humour. You know, I make no apologies. Just like for it. prisoners do. Yeah, exactly. Gallows humour. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, yeah. but and but deep down, it, it affects you. Every post-mortem that you go to, you know, the, the, the sounds, the smells. The... Well, take us through your first post-mortem. My first post-mortem wasn't a murder victim. It was a stroke victim. And, um every pro- probationer somebody within the first two years has to go to a, a a postmortem and the sound of the the saw which is used to remove the cranium um the smells in in there it's it's something i could talk you through every postmortem that i've ever been to they're horrendous but christmas eve standing next to somebody's body whilst they're having a you know and you're talking about what's going to happen the next day you know for, for your Christmas
1: it's not normal how long does that take to saw the cranium
2: oh not long they, they're, they're pretty quick
1: <sighs> and how long does a whole post-mortem take
2: well that depends if it's, a, if it's a home office pathologist it can take hours um, and it all depends on what they're going to do so they might remove all the skin they might take out the testicles. Have to watch that. Yeah. So every, I know. Tell me about it. So, so, but the, but the thing is, uh, behind all of these victims is a family. Yeah. You know, and their their nearest and dearest are going through. They're, they're going through this procedure, which is awful. But if they don't undertake the procedure. How on earth are we ever going to find out how they died, how their nearest and dearest died?
1: So if it's not obvious the cause of death, is the procedure more invasive then? They have to go yeah. everywhere. Yeah.
2: And, and what the, yeah. Well, they do anyway. They do anyway, but it could be um, they'll take the brain and they'll send it off to another pathologist who's, who's got an expertise in in that. Um, they'll send off slides to different people to see what someone's eaten. And there's there's a whole host of, processes that have to take place. And watching
1: the autopsy then, does it just suddenly become apparent at a moment sometimes that this is is how this person died or does all the tests have to come in?
2: Sometimes. So for instance we had one case where um, the victim died in a a fire or we believed he died. Gay male, um, previously lived abroad, comes back for whatever reason, and I I can't recall why, um, this guy kills him. Well, we thought he died in a house fire, but when they did the post-mortem, they found that the bone here, they hired Hiale, it, it, like it, Epstein, had been snapped. Well, there's only one way that's going to happen, is because of strangulation, and at that point, um, we then, you know, the bosses declared it as a murder.
1: Yeah, that's why the uh, theories about Epstein, because it appears that to to have that injury hanging isn't enough. You've got to have that, maybe a cable round the neck or something. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, going back then to... Oh, I had another question, actually, from something you just said. How often does the
2: occult and Satanism come up in crimes? It's not something that I've had a lot of dealings with, to be fair. I'll tell you what does come up. When you have a missing person, the amount of um, mediums that contact you, <laughs> you, you know... Uh, and and if they were all right, then we'd have bodies all over the place. You know, it's just, it, it is, uh, but the occult and something like that. That said, you know, I, I can, can't say it's never happened, but it's not something that I've really experienced. Yeah. Um, any any mediums that
1: were, that hit the spot or no. never? <laughs> if they did, By they'd, chance. Have, they'd have chosen my lottery tickets last night if I had. <laughs> All right, so you
2: joined in 1986. What was the training like? Well, I I enjoyed it, if I'm honest with you. You know, spent all this time in deepest, darkest Kent. Um, I'd never been so fit. The food was awful. Uh, You'd spend any money that you have got going to the local Chinese to top up. Um, You weren't allowed in the bar for the first half of your course. I can't remember how many weeks we did. Was it very physical? Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't think of it looking at me now, but... (laughs) um yeah it was very i mean it was freezing cold when i was down there we got snowed in but it was brilliant you know it was but that's what built your camaraderie you were you were thrown into a group of people that we had people that carried the gun at you know the devon gunners and all those sorts of things with the royal navy we we had all sorts of walks of life and then you had this 21 year old who'd spent his life working for his, with his grandfather and with my, my parents at a garden centre. Um, you know, we all came from very different, diverse backgrounds, but it was fantastic. They don't do regional police um, training colleges anymore, unfortunately. But Did you get any firearms training? No, I wasn't firearms. Trunction training? Yeah, of course I had trunks. So I had a trunction when I first joined. I had a the the wooden, I think the Americans call it the billy club. But, <laughs> um, but then we moved on to the ASP which is a uh, extendable baton, um, CS spray, but no. As part of your training, do you have to be exposed to the spray? Yeah. How was that? Well, I wouldn't recommend it. Let's put it that way. It's not. It's not the best feeling in the world. There was a prison,
1: a jail, or a house riot, and they came in with the chemical. It was like a fire extinguisher-sized canister of it, and it just all the snot comes oh, out, and all awful. your eyes just start running, and then. I had an old timer cellmate and he's like, just wrap a wet towel around your head and blink and blink, and it'll get that shit out your eyes. Yeah,
2: no, it's not, it's not good. I, w- like I, say, I wouldn't recommend it. But yeah, no, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was that's um, part of part of life. If you wanted to be in the police service,
1: would you say that people join the police who join the police have got a bit of an adrenaline um, affinity for adrenaline spikes? Like, like the robbers have an affinity for adrenaline spikes. Um, there's, there's a similarity there. Yeah. <sighs>
2: there is adrenaline i mean we i'd be lying you know when if you're driving at hundred and something miles an hour down the motorway you, you know yeah your adrenaline does go and when you're rushing to a job and you've got blue lights on but yeah of course it is and i think people do they join initially to do that and who wouldn't who who wouldn't want to take part why did i join um I joined because there was stability to start off with. That's why I joined the police service. You know, I watched my grandfather, like I say, picking out the cat crap out of the, the sand and taking the ice off the water baths. Did I want to be doing that when I was nearly 70? No, of course I didn't. And the fact is, at that time, you got housing allowance, you got boot allowance, the girls got stocking allowance. I mean, that was fantastic. Um. So it was a, you know, it was a completely different generation.
1: And this was when they had like beat cups and stuff like that. When
2: you saw all the police officers
1: walking around, yeah.
2: In fairness, I mean, a lot of forces still have that, but but because of the uh, the cuts and austerity that's taken place, they've sold so much of the family silver, they're never ever going to recover back to where they were. And actually, as a as a ratepayer. You do want to see, you know, you may not even the people that don't want to see the coppers walking around actually do. They actually want to have that peace of mind that they're going to have a local police officer that's going to deal with their neighborly disputes or the dog crapping on the sidewalk or whatever it may be. So, yeah. So, after your training, which police station were you out of? Braintree to start off with. Braintree.
1: And what were your first assignments there?
2: um My first arrest, I was off duty. Okay. I passed out in um passing out is where you have your final parade okay so i passed out on maundy thursday which for the american viewers is the day that the queen gives a coin to every person or say every person one coin to however many people were on the she's been on the throne for however many years she's been on the throne she gives them a coin it's called maundy thursday i passed out on the maundy thursday i didn't get a coin from the queen and on the friday night saturday night i went to a party with my brother and his now wife and on the way back we stopped for a kebab in colchester and a fight started and i thought oh I remember this this is criminal damage because they smashed the cabinet the kebab cabinet and we ended up having a fight in the middle of the street and the, when the police turned up they handcuffed me and i got a clump as well which Turns out, in years to come, I ended up working with these two guys. Um, but yeah, because they thought I was the protagonist in all of this, and I had absolutely no. And I always remember my brother shouting out, leave him alone, he's a copper, he's a copper. So yeah, and they got my warrant card out, and that was my first arrest. My first investigation was the theft of a set of hubcaps off of a uh, Ford Capri, and the gentleman responsible... Took them and put them on his Ford Capri, less than a quarter of a mile. Oh, yeah! But you see, what you got to remember, criminal genius. Well, but we—no disrespect—but we, yeah. we only catch the stupid ones. <laughs> we only catch the, they only catch the ones that want to overegg it. They want to make more money out of it. You know, if if people kept it simple. The police wouldn't be quite as prolific when it comes to arrests well look how, that's not a tip by the way
1: look how hard it was to catch escobar well they didn't even catch him in the end he died didn't well yeah um so as you're going on these assignments then is it meeting your expectations the job are you
2: happy with the work yeah i yeah i think my first 15 years absolutely brilliant but i think you get to this point and and it's different now because they work a lot longer but i i'd got to the point point, 15 years in i had two young boys um and i wanted to leave but i was pension trapped at that point which is a nice thing now but at that time but no it always met my expectations um yeah listen we all have disappointments of course we do but um yeah i, I thoroughly enjoyed what when was the first time you got attacked oh quite early on i mean early on the worst and i've had a couple of beatings but the worst one was in a pub on a sunday during the old sunday licensing and we went into this pub jack and jenny pub in of all places and um was with my colleague smashing fella and these three guys are in there they're drunk the pubs then they closed and then they'd open again for the evening session and Guy sitting on the on the bar stall, I won't name him. And um, the landlord says, uh, "I need him to go. He's, we've got. He's got to go." So I said, well, "Okay. Well, the law is that the landlord has to come round and assist you with the removal of the, the the person." So he comes round, and as he does, he said, "Right, I want you to go." This guy picks up a glass, goes to the glass of the landlord. I get him, put him on the floor, handcuff him, and as I do, I just. I'm hit. I get smashed with a pool cue, and it was like a western, and it was us versus you know the pub, and you, you used to put up. I don't even know what they call it now, but you say it was ten nine, which is basically you you need help. And suffice to say, the I've never been so pleased to see the traffic guys turn up. You know, they turned up <laughs> in their masses, in their lovely new Granadas or whatever they were driving at the time, and. Mm-hmm. you know we took these guys out and but it's quite it's quite frightening believe me it's really it's quite scary because all the bluff and bluster I got I got um, well let's let's finish that. so they got they ended up getting convicted uh, for assault on police and they made complaints because you know they've allegedly been pushed around a little bit but um, but it is scary because every day whatever people say they are putting their lives on the line you never know what what you're going to. You never know that the poor bugger's got mental health, that you're going through his front door. You don't know that he's not going to pick up a knife and attack you. And I was on duty in the office and a um, call comes up. Arm robbery had taken place at a post office, gun scene, the whole lot. I tip out. I've got a, a, a kid with me who hadn't been in the police very long. And I said, come on, get in. I said, and if you see a gun, just get out of the way because they'd got involved in a they they were going to get involved in a high speed chase these, these fellas and um i parked up car comes off of the a12 and i see it i overtake it because it's it's four people in this vehicle so they're a lot heavier i overtake it in this police car and i think if we get into the town the kids are, are, are coming out of school we've got to stop this now so i just literally anchored up and they they rammed me They starburst and all I remember is this one guy, he's about six foot four and he pours himself out of the car and I've got an asp at this point and I'm thinking, I've got got to win this one. I've got to win because if I don't win this one, I'm dead. And he's got his hands going down into his trousers. Unbeknownst to me, he's got 10 grand in cash stuffed down his trousers and I thought he still had the gun with him. So I'm hitting him for all I'm worth. And you talk about adrenaline rush. You, I could have hit a golf ball 500 meters with that sort of adrenaline. And I am literally unleashing on him. And he's still running. He's still running. We get into a public park. And all I can hear, because I'm in plain clothes, I'm, stop hitting him, stop hitting it. And I'm wellying him as hard as I possibly can. And he's getting. The, he, he's finally got his hand on the money and he's throwing it up in the air, expecting me to stop and pick up the money, you know, as if that's going to happen. But yeah, that, and but your life flashes before you. You really believe that um, something untowards is going to happen. So earlier you said, you know,
1: the job provided stability. You, did you mean like guaranteed employment and paycheck? Yeah. Because on the other end, stability, the opposite of that is instability a chance you could die at any moment yeah you yeah you could
2: absolutely absolutely i'm gonna cough i'm sorry yeah cough cough <laughs> for it <coughs> um yeah absolutely i mean the, the stability was around housing you know we we got paid well 356 pounds a month in rent allowance then you know you're talking about 30 years ago that was a bloody lot of money to go so about to- a grand today or something like that yeah, well they don't and they don't get anything now so you, you know, I was asked about the the corruption element, and I think that there is a risk now because if wages fall much lower, you, in order to employ and to get the best person and the m- most honest person, you have to pay pro- proper money. And if they are, if if you don't pay proper money, and they see something, or someone says to them, "Oh, do you know what? You can have, you can have this. You can have that cheap. there's a few quid." They're going to start taking the least line of resistance because actually. They've still got families to feed. They've still got all those things. I'm not condoning it by any stretch of the imagination. But when you've got staff that are traveling from Colchester to Harlow, 50 odd miles each way, and they've got a family and they've got to buy a house and they're earning the square root of nothing, that's where your corruption is going to start kicking in. It's the same with the prison
1: guards. Years ago, they were all big, bad ex-military. And now from the guys I interview who've just come out in the UK, they say the they're like Tesco workers. Oh yeah, earning a pittance. Yeah, and they're just easy to seduce or corrupt. Or have them bring drugs in or whatever. Mobile
2: phones, drugs, yeah, all those sorts of things. And and you can see how it happens, how they fall into this this thing. Oh, yeah, oh you you talk about that. We we had a job where um a Polish gentleman was executed out in Epping Forest for what reason? He'd crossed his pals, basically. So they drove him around the, they drove him around the road took him into Epping Forest and they shot him, allegedly, because nobody was ever found guilty of this. Um, when you interview a handful of Polish people who ordinarily would have had a, a particularly hard time with the police in their own country, to give somebody 24 hours or 36 hours in British police custody is a walk in the park. Mm. You know, you've got all these different factors around it. And the other thing you've got to remember is some sections of society, life is cheap. You know, the, the um, member of the public who stabs his best friend because his best friend says that his sister is a whore. That was a phrase from their own country that was used, it was you know, derogatory term, but it was a phrase that was used all the time. They've had an argument and he said, you know, I spit on your mother's eye or whatever it may be. He's taken a knife and stabbed him. Yeah, you've got all these different elements within the, that the police have to now deal with.
1: What was the closest you ever came, other than what you've
2: already described, that you thought you might lose your life? Um, I think I think that's probably the worst. I mean, there, there've been moments where I've been scared. It, during, the, during the London riots, we got deployed to um, one particular area and it was calm. You know, we were doing some nice patrols, we're in Camden, nice people. They're happy to see us, have a cup of coffee, all those sorts of things. Then you get called to um, Brixton, where a gun shop has been broken into and all the weapons have been taken, and you're getting sent over there on a blue light run. And what starts off as a everybody's happy, we're all you know all eating the sandwiches that the Met have provided us, and all those sorts you know, to shit. You know what? This is this is getting real. And not you know, what I had mates who had stood there and their petrol bombs thrown at them, and they're standing in fire and that's quite unnerving how does it feel to be in a full riot situation is it like braveheart well touch wood i've never been in a i've i've never been in a full-on level two visors down situation yes i've been in public order patrols where um edl or someone like that would put together a protest and then we'd have to go and uh go and police that there's a lot of pushing and shoving um but it is quite you know because it can it can turn on a on a flick of a coin and and that's you know it's quite a say unnerving did they give you
1: training then in handling cultural variations of London and did you experience see racism
2: so I'm glad you asked that question because I think that the police service now work harder than ever before to promote diversity okay um when I joined, it was a completely different era. We loved our neighbour. only finished about five years before we, we, before I joined. So, you, you, you know, and did I experience racism? Um, yes, but was it racism that you would call racism? Yes, it's still racism, but it was, it was jokes and somebody would have been offended. Yes, and I, you know, I did experience some of that. Have I experienced anybody that's been treated differently? I think I'd like to think that everybody that I've dealt with has been dealt with fairly and with balance.
1: Well it was everywhere wasn't it? I mean I grew up in a predominantly white um northern class uh, northern uh, chemical manufacturing town. Yeah. that was homophobic and racist and all kinds of crazy stuff was just just going on back then.
2: I've I've got friends who who are gay and couldn't come out because the response within their peer groups within the police service you know i've I've got some lovely friends who um they've been been together 30 odd years but they could not come out and that that's that's more than disappointing that's you know that's disgusting i've got black friends who have experienced racism and i think that they're the, probably the better people to speak to because as a white essex boy yeah, it was probably going on around me, but I wouldn't have noticed it quite as much as if I was if I was black or I was, or was from a uh, ethnic background. But as I say, I'd like to think that everybody I've dealt with is, or had contact with was dealt with with dignity and, and respect, because I believe that everyone's got a voice, irrespective of you know black, white, green, Chinese, gay, straight. It doesn't that doesn't phase me at all. I will treat you as the person that I see before me, not because of what you are or who you may be.
1: So you started out in the Colchester area then. Did you move closer towards London over time?
2: I I finished up at Harlow.
1: Harlow, okay.
2: Harlow, so 70,000 people living in 11 square miles. Diversity is rife. Big Eastern European um, community there. They work bloody hard. You know, whatever anybody says, you read it all the time on social media saw some Eastern, well, one, how do you know they're Eastern European? Because, you know, they work so hard in order to get money together to give to their families, To and they're so family orientated. But Harlow was a great place to work. Um, I had family there, I've still got family there. It's, so yes, you're moving closer to London. So I was running um, undercover jobs, drugs, guns, things like that. Um, fascinating. But, of course, it moved closer into the London districts because Essex, I don't know if you know, but there's seven tube stations in Essex. Um, you start to border the Metropolitan Police. You're going into Barkingside right on... So you're starting to pick up all the East London um, areas. You've got Chigwell. You've got all the footballers that live around there. So it's quite a... You've got... Oh, this is going to sound awful, but you've got affluence and effluent. You know, and, and at one point I was DCI for the area, so I'd cover greys um Tilbury all round there uh Epping Forest districts Loughton Chigwell Harlow Brentwood so i had quite an area to cover but um yeah it was it was great football hooligans how did you handle them well, I am a lifelong West Ham fan <laughs> so um I knew I knew some of the individuals from my previous life, not that I was a football hooligan. it's just that because I was at West Ham as often as I possibly could go and uh, so uh, it wasn't something that I had a great deal to do with. I mean, Colchester United and South End, which was where we used to police, they had their own hooligan element, but it was normally when. Another team came into the area, so they got treated with the same level as everybody else, to be fair. So the
1: war on drugs gets ramped up, yeah, and there's a lot more, there's like a lot more toys available and, and spending for the police in terms of going down that line of work. Is that what enticed you? What the drugs, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, because it was look- like sold, wasn't it, as you j- join. The drug squad and you'll be you know you'll get this car and this surveillance equipment
2: and you'll be able to do all this but it but, was like a you see i never went on the drug squad yeah i was an undercover manager Okay. so i i didn't so i'd have you know people that would would go out on the street and that's a dangerous role that is bloody dangerous you know you and good luck to them they, there's a lot of bad press around the undercover world at the moment and maybe some of it's right but you know what it's not a job that i would have wanted to do and I've got some mates who have done it and it's a, that is a bloody tough job. So you manage those people. Yeah.
1: So if those people must have got in some really
2: dangerous situations, yeah. could, any stories you can tell us about that? Well, it's the usual sort of thing. You know, where they're buying cocaine um, or they're buying crack and heroin mainly. You know, and that is bloody, you're going into somebody's property, you're buying stuff from them. It's, it's a horrendous job. Um but it's fascinating. They come back, and they they they'll be doing this for six months to a year. But it's so impactful for the police, you know. Wh- you, again, going back, swinging that old blue lamp. When I joined, cannabis was the the drug of choice. You know that that was that was it. Really, yes. All right, there were other drugs, speed and what have you, were available. But then. We had the, the dance culture started coming in, the raves, the, you know all the other, the ecstasy, LSD, all those sorts of things, the death of their betts, You know, it, it's, the fight against drugs um, has been going on for years, but never has it been so big. And cost versus reward, you know, there's a lot of money to be made at it. Although I think a lot of people, because of the COVID element, there's not the, there's not the ease of the money. I think it's probably pushed the price of the drugs up, but it's not as easy to get it in because there's more uh, of a concentrated effort in the ports and whatever to stop it from coming in. So
1: America's spent $2 on a war on drugs. Um, Drugs have become stronger than ever before, e.g. fentanyl. Do you think that the drug war is a waste of taxpayers' money and we should have heeded the lessons of alcohol prohibition, which led to the mafia taking over and all the violence and
2: all the bootlegging and all the criminality and all the corruption. So tin hat time because I think, you know, not not everyone's going to agree, but I don't think it's a waste of money. I think that um if you go back to the cannabis element, okay. Cannabis doesn't automatically mean that you're going to try ecstasy or any other drug. It doesn't mean that at all. But what it does mean is that a crime, nine times out of ten, will be committed in order to purchase those drugs, though that cannabis, okay? Because if you're smoking fifteen quids worth a week and that's coming out of your top line and you're not earning anything and you're just getting your benefits or you're earning a little bit of money elsewhere, you've got to break into a car. You've got to steal a push bike. You've got to you've got to undertake some level of criminality. I'm not saying everybody, but some level of criminality to buy your gear so let's move that on because actually those people at the very top very rarely get their hands dirty very rarely do they get convicted very rarely are they within 20 slots of the actual gear coming over but they've made a significant investment an investment that will give them great returns to lead a particular lifestyle now it's interesting because um i really like judge rinder i think he's i think he's very good and he But he's very vocal around this particular thing where social acceptance with the middle classes of taking cocaine, because you've got, if you've got barristers and the like saying that this is wrong, but you've got another percentage of people because society is society. There will be people in all walks of society that will do it, but the people that they're either defending or locking up the same people that are supplying them the gear for their posh dinner parties. So in answer to your question, no, I don't think it's a waste of money. I think that there is insufficient um, effort around some areas. I think that the fact that um, they demean or almost declassify cannabis uh, undermines the actual offence of the Misuse of Drugs Act. Okay, Controversial, sorry. So you're talking about acquisitive
1: crime then? So, ex-cop uh, Neil Woods, who we've interviewed, people may see that on the true crime uh, ex-cop playlist. He has said that of all drug users, heroin users are a minuscule fraction of drug users, but they commit the majority of acquisitive crime, burglaries, car theft, yeah. shoplifting—all you know, all this stuff. Now, Portugal had over a hundred thousand problematic heroin users. Yeah. They decriminalized, and the users were no longer afraid to speak to the health teams because they knew they weren't going to get arrested. And Portugal got down the the users down to less than fifty thousand in, in record time. Yeah, what do you think with, about policies like that? Um
2: I like the idea. W- what what I'll say is, I actually feel for you know homelessness, um, drink and drugs dependency because you are looking at you know. Th- the people that take heroin, their lives are absolutely on the rocks. Many of them were sexually
1: abused as kids, yeah. and from what we've learned through these interviews,
2: and, th- and there's so many social issues wrapped around their lifestyles. Now, it's easy to, um, it's easy to push somebody out into the cold, you know. Um, but we should we should be helping people. I really, you know, I, I believe that, and I think that. Um, Heroin is such an insidious drug that the people that are on it need, but they need greater sentencing. Dare I say it for those people that are actually bringing it into the country? That those people or for that, the traffickers, the traffickers. There should yeah. be greater um, reach across the globe because the heroin trade is a global effort. And there should be greater effort to bring those people to justice and to support those people that live in. I'm, I'm a, a, I suppose I'm a closet socialist in a lot of ways. I believe that every child should have a meal on the table. That everybody's got a right to national health. Now that will come as a bit of a surprise to some of your American viewers because you know they they don't have a Mm -hmm. national health service, Um, and you know we're privileged. From that perspective, I believe we're privileged, but we're underprivileged in other ways because we still have kids going to bed hungry. And guess what? If you go to a child that's got no food on the table and you say, go and sell me this bag of heroin to the local bloke who's sleeping rough and I'll give you a fiver out of the deal, they're going to do that because that's the only way they're going to get a McDonald's on their table. And that's where we're lacking as, as society.
1: So the leap cops say that if we legalise all drugs... The traffickers you're talking about giving big sentences to won't even have that job anymore. It's, it takes it out of the hands of the criminals. Do you agree that that would happen?
2: No. And I'll tell you why. Because we still have a clandestine market for alcohol and cigarettes in this country. So you'll end up... We have counterfeits. So you have counterfeit cigarettes. All right? You'll end up having counterfeit drugs. There's still got to be... There's still going to be... Hasn't got to be, but there will still be a market for criminality even if we legalise it. That's a, that's my view, and you know I respect what they say, but I don't subscribe to that.
1: Because we're seeing that the cartels are being hit by weed being legalised and decriminalised in America because that is the most consumed drug in the world. So the cartels have lost some of that revenue source. Mm. We have seen that happen.
2: But, but the, what comes with that is... cannabis has changed over the past 30 years you know when i was a kid at school there was lebanese and there was moroccan you know red and black okay now you've got cannabis that is so strong and if we allow that to go on then what we're going to have is another generation or a generation of people that won't want to get off of work You've you've got to have motivation and if your motivation is to smoke a joint and then go and spend the rest of the day playing on your playstation okay that's your own personal choice but don't expect me to subscribe to supporting you in that it's a bit old-fashioned as i say i know i'm going to get a load of abuse for that but that's that's how i feel it's interesting
1: to hear the other side of what neil was saying because neil said that the potency of cannabis is a function of drug laws because if you look at alcohol prohibition people just going out and having a beer and a wine but once it became a black market and the the criminals wanted to get the most bang for the book. So they made the highest concentrated liquor and that's why you're seeing the fentanyl, that's why you're seeing the, uh, the cannabis has become these really super strong strains because the criminals are in
2: charge and they want to get the, the biggest bang for the book. But even in the places where they decriminalize it, they still make the the potent cannabis, they still do the skunk. So, you know, if you go to Holland where they're very liberal around the drug use, you could walk into any cafe and, and buy the strongest skunk, which will knock you out for a week. So, yeah, you know what? Everyone's entitled to their opinion, but I don't subscribe to that. All right. So, on the drugs squad, you've got, like, people underneath
1: you who are undercover. What was the hurriest things that happened to them? Anyone get kidnapped? Anyone died? Anyone? No, there, got, there was... Got in bad uh, situations? Oh,
2: yeah, they got in bad situations. You know, you... Where they, you know, they'd be in a group of people and they get turned over by the police or whatever it may be, because that's the last thing you want. Um, what well, they're undercover and the cops come in
0: and yeah. don't know they're undercover. Yeah, and they, yeah, well, be, they we, get beat up. Yeah, well. but
2: it's not something that you discuss. Once, yeah. once, you, once, yeah. you, once you, you're in, you're in. You're, you you work in a very small team. A very small, trustworthy team. And they're fantastic. They do a fantastic job. There's not a Masonic handshake they can do to get out of that situation. No. No Masonic, no Masonic handshake. We're going to have to have a beer about this. Um, um, no, I mean, look, it, it, every, day is a, every day is a difficult day for them. And some of them won't wash for bloody weeks, so they fit in nicely with the... You know, if you go in smelling of... Uh, this, you know, some nice Christian Dior shower gel. <laughs> someone's going to soon pick up on that, aren't they? You know, yeah. you you have, they have to live their role.
1: So was that, what, when did you go into the CID then? Have I jumped have Jumped? So I bit? went
2: into the CID, I'd started my plain clothes stuff in 89. Yeah. Then I went on major crime in 2000. So I did a various, you know, variety of things between 89 and 2000, worked on divisional CID, um, worked on major crime investigations. And then Essex had the, the idea, they took it from the Met, to build specially designed teams. So a team is designed of, you've got a senior investigating officer, which is a superintendent now, deputy, su- uh, deputy SIO, office managers, um, and then you'd have separate teams. So one, one office is something like 30 people in there, or there were, plus the indexes. Statement readers, um, action managers, allocators, exhibit officers, intelligence cell. So there's quite a lot there.
1: So you got wrapped up in the Renton murders when it was alleged that two of your colleagues were involved in the Essex boys case. Darren Nichols was the source who drove Holmes and Steel to the scene. Holmes and Steel. Yeah. Could you set the table for this by explaining. What the Rettendon murders and so the Essex boy cases are. Rettendon
2: murders: um, three men are taken out and executed in a Range Rover out in Rettendon, which is in deepest darkest Essex. Um, it then turns out that um, officers in in my office were running an informant called Darren Nichols, and Darren Nichols, it transpires, was the man that drove, allegedly drove, Worms and Steel. To Retford, where the three men were murdered, Worms has still been subsequently convicted. Um, protesting their innocence, maintaining their innocence, but they've been convicted at the Old Bailey. Um, and it was alleged that the two officers were um, corrupt. Going back to the conversation we had earlier on, they stood trial and were found not guilty. You know, they 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 took the test of twelve good people, and they were found not guilty at, at the subsequent hearing. So that was quite, that was a bit of a, a life-changing moment for me as a quite stressful, quite stressful to say the least because the scrutiny that we as a an office went through was quite overwhelming to a point where I think a few of us would have just thrown our hands in because we'd actually, we'd done absolutely nothing wrong yet we were subject to the same level of scrutiny as everybody else and it was, oh, we got, we actually got, regs that you won't understand regulations so you get stuck on to say you're being investigated and they gave that to us on christmas eve of that particular year you know merry christmas and by the way there's a there's a load of regs which could cost you your job knowing full well you haven't done anything wrong but yeah it was just it was a bit of a bit of a sad time really for for us and for essex excuse me and for essex police
1: what was the motive for the Renton murders, and what were the backgrounds of the victims? Um,
2: my belief, and this is only my belief, but it was all drug-related. Um, three men, take Tucker and Rolf, for whatever reason, um, Mick Steele and Jack Womes shot them in the back of the Range Rover. It's well-documented, uh, well-publicized, and uh, yeah. Have you watched the movie Rise of the Foot
1: Soldier? No. I think I saw it in that.
2: Yeah, it's it's all to do with that and the Essex Boys and all that. I, I'm a bit rubbish when it comes to police dramas or anything like that. The the case I was talking about earlier on, Daniel Jones, when Stuart Campbell subsequently convicted, Panorama, I think it's Panorama, one of the BBC did a did a program on it and. Um, All of a sudden, my voice came on, and we were sitting eating t- our tea uh, on our laps, watching it on TV. I was like, that's my voice. That's my voice. And they used my interviews in order to open the program up. So, but I, I, don't watch, I don't watch anything like that, to be honest. So there was a situation at the
1: mortuary where they went to see their relative and asked for a photo with the body. Yeah. So, How does uh, that work?
2: So, uh, crime of passion. Well, loosely. Um, gentleman was having an affair with a allegedly having an affair with a woman. Her husband wasn't very happy, and they strangled him and threw him in a ditch. So, I'm a family li- family liaison officer, and we go to they do the post mortem, and we go to the mortuary so that the family, because they're from overseas, they want to see the body of their nearest and dearest, their cousin. So, okay, so we tip up there, and um, he's. Uh, in the mortuary room, about this size, actually, uh, purple shroud pulled up to his neck, and one of them said, is "This is my cousin." So I said, "Oh, okay, yeah, yeah." He said, uh, "Can we have a photograph?" I think, well, this is a little bit, uh, little bit odd. So I phoned up the um, the coroner. I said, "Look, you, we asked about you asked about diversity earlier on, you know, and this is not something that you can train anyone." So I phoned up and said, "Look, this is what the request is," and she said, "Yeah, not a problem." So, I think there's 14 of them, and they're all standing around the body, giving it a big thumbs up. And oh, yeah. And it was just part, but just part of their culture.
1: Quite normal in Transylvania. Well, allegedly, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs>
1: so, you took a parent to see her son at the mortuary where the procedure had taken place, the stitches were visible.
2: She thought that the person responsible for his death had chopped his chopped head, his head off. off. I mean, that was awful. So can you imagine, you're, taking, you're driving the, a, a family to see their nearest and dearest who's, who's died. As it happens, he, this was a tragic accident. He would come out of a pub, fall over, banged his head on no. the curb and, and died. Was but he it, inebriated? Yeah, he was. And he was with a group of other people and they thought that he'd been killed by them and all that sort of oh. stuff. Anyway, so it's the hottest day of the year. I've got four people in a Ford Fiesta with no aircon I've got a grieving mother you can Im- you can just imagine it can't you? it's absolutely awful we go in there and where they've undertaken the the mortem procedure you can still see the sit- stitches and they she honestly believed I mean she collapsed bless her heart but she honestly believed that her son's head had been chopped off oh. because the 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 um, blanket hadn't been pulled up High and up, up, up around the neck yeah yeah so that you know that's quite a this is what i'm saying these are the memories that you never ever i've got i've got dozens like this or you know dozens of of where i've been to post-mortems but you they never leave you i remember the first person first fatal road collision i ever went to and i hadn't been in the police very long and this man had fallen in the road and as he knelt up a taxi came along and decapitated him. Oh. And it was like um it was like the top of an egg had, oh. come, had come off. And I remember that and I got back to my police house and there was a car parked in my drive and I ne- nearly lost my shit because I couldn't get up to park my car. You know, they're the sorts of things and and I'm one of a hundred thousand plus there's eighty-nine thousand members of National Association of Retired Police Officers in the UK. They've all got stories like this. They've all seen different things. And, you know, some of them are bloody unpleasant. Did you ever get sent to a house
1: or a location whereby you did not know what you were getting into and you discovered a
2: corpse? Um, Yes. Uh, Well, the the thing about um, those types of calls, there's normally a clue. There's normally a clue that you're going to find somebody inside. So you could turn up to a house in the middle of June, and there'll be a thousand blue bottles parked up on the on the inside of the glass, Um or you know the mail's piled up. Mail's piled up, or somebody's Milk been bottles. missing. I had a lady; had been they hadn't seen her for months, and where she decomposed, the body started to drip through the. Through the sea, you know, so, the so those sorts of things, but you've not, there's normally a clue there, so there's none of them a real, a real surprise. I had, I did have a lady that, um, we got sent to thinking that she'd passed away. We turn up, I break in, uh, go and go down in there and, um, feel for a pulse. I can't feel anything. So, okay, fine. Yeah, I call up, uh, yeah, I've, uh, lady here, she's dead and she sits bolt upright. She goes, i'm not dead I'm like, <laughs> scared the life out of me but um but yeah you normally you normally get you normally get a clue that there's something not going to be right and do you have to
1: take precautions for your schnoz in a situation like that yeah smelling salts or put well i mean no that i mean that actually,
2: you just You can't walk around with smelling salts. At the end of the day, you go in and hold your breath and hope to God that you can hold it long enough to get back out before you have to take the next one. What you actually do, you find you sort of almost internally clamp your nose and breathe through your mouth. It's quite... um, That takes it away. Yeah, it does. Oh, some of it. And you, you feel sick. And sometimes it sticks to you. The smell sticks to your clothes. Yeah, it's quite putrid.
1: Were there any situations that made you physically hurl?
2: Um Someone else being sick, believe it or not. That's what makes me feel sick. Everything else is just, you know, just get on with it. But somebody else being sick, a drunk being sick at the side of the road, mate, would make me feel sick. How tricky is
1: it to handle drunks?
2: Oh, yeah. It depends. I mean, you can you, you get friendly drunks and you get violent drunks. The problem is with a violent drunk, they put themselves at risk as well as everybody else. So, yeah, alcohol has a strange effect on people. You could drink. You might be a whiskey drinker. You could drink a bottle. You'll feel fine. I might have a couple of glasses and I want to fight the world. You know, so everybody's different when it comes to alcohol.
1: Have you got people who are like, they want to fight the world and then they're in the cells and the next day they can't even remember
2: what they did? Shaking your hand and saying sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah you'd have that. You'd have your regular drunks. You'd have your, fam, you know, your domestic violent drunks. You, I joined at an era where domestic violence wasn't an issue. It was an issue, but it wasn't investigated to the same level that it is now. It's not dealt with with the same level of compassion that it is now. It's fantastic that people can feel safe, irrespective of whether you're heterosexual, gay, whatever it is. You, you've now got the ability to go to the police and say. I've been assaulted by my partner. Yes, there are some malicious allegations. Of course, there are that you're going to get that in every every walk of life. But the police deal with that in a far better way than they ever did. So the
1: the, the person you mentioned earlier who died of starvation, is that the one who was barricaded in the cupboard?
2: Yeah. How
1: long does it take to die of starvation? Horrendous. They say you can go so many days without water and then... So many I think I sent you a copy food. of the press
2: cutting, didn't I? The, yeah. the, 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 the shot. I mean, the fact is that he was put in there and locked in a cupboard and died. Jesus. God knows how long that took him. Poor bugger. So how
1: come you ended up in Perth,
2: Western Australia? Well, um, we had a um, a rape, in a sexual assault in Braintree. So here's the story. I've been to Marbella for the weekend to go visit a friend. I'm driving back and I saw a search team out in the street near where about a mile and a half from where I lived. so I said to my wife I'm going to phone in and find out so I phoned up and the boss said do you want to come in we're short of staff so I went in on my annual leave day (laughs) went in um and we identified that this person had been he's been convicted and he's probably out now he's one person who probably wouldn't want to see me again but um Girl's been attacked, and we do some digging, find out that he is a an Australian national, um, or British national who moved to Australia when he was a kid. He then he's then come back to the UK, but when we do some checks on him, there's some outstanding inquiries in relation to him out in Australia, which meant that we went out to Perth, four of us. Very nice it was too. But an office is an office; it doesn't matter where you go. Um, you could be anywhere in the world. You've travelled, you know, if you're doing whatever job you're doing. An office is an office. A recording studio is a recording studio. It's just got different people in it. A beer is a beer, you know. At the end of the day, so yeah, it was a. I had some great experiences. I met some fantastic people as well. I've done. I've done things that people would pay money to do. Yeah, you know, and and it has led to some privileges. You know, make no mistake. I've done some. I've done some great things that if I hadn't been in the police, they probably wouldn't have been. Uh, they wouldn't have opened the door. Australian High Commission, you probably know this, but they did the Gringotts Bank scene of Harry Potter there. Now, that's got nothing to do with the crimes, but but as a, a history buff and, and to go into these different places, I'm a volunteer at the Tower of London on a Tuesday. You know, all these different things, it's, I do see it as a very privileged. So, when you got to Australia, what did you actually do there? So... We had to go with our colleagues from the Western Australian Police to take statements off of people out there who had known the suspect whilst he'd lived out there to try and build a course of conduct and and what have you. So that's what we did there. But the legislation is such that whilst we can read and write, we're not able to take the statements. So these poor souls from Western Australian Police, absolutely brilliant bunch of people, um, they took the statements on our behalf. So we'd gone out there to... To monitor. What am I going to monitor? They they know what
1: they're doing. I can imagine there was a bit of banter with the Aussie cops. They're brilliant.
2: They are absolutely
1: brilliant. Big, a, big drinkers, are.
2: They like a beer. Yeah, they like a beer. They, they treat it as well. We went on the river cruise, and we did some fantastic things with them, yeah. So then you went over to the FBI lab at Quantico so, with, with a lone pubic hair. Yeah, so this is quite sad, actually, because um, a nine-year-old girl uh, was sexually assaulted, and... On the inside of her underwear was a single pubic hair and we took that pubic hair checked it dna comes back as with the suspect um then there's some dispute as to how she got that in her underwear so we didn't have an expert in the uk at that time who could do around fiber transference and how far a hair would travel i don't have to worry about it but how far a hair would travel if there was you know if it got into the wind etc etc but there was a guy out there who was fascinating guy you know absolutely brilliant but you think oh fbi this is going to be you know it is it is absolutely brilliant when you turn up at the gates and you've got the scene from um Oh, what's the, the the film with Silence of the Lambs? Silence of the Lambs. You've got the sign from Silence of the Lambs. You go in there. They've got a, a, a mock up of, of a city or a town, and they've got a mock up of the cinema where Dillinger met his last breath. And they've got all these different. So they could practice dealing with armed robberies and what have you. I went into the uh, ballistics lab. They've got a they've got every type of gun you can imagine. They've got replica the replica. Of the rifle that was used to assassinate Kennedy, the hat, the real one is locked away, but they used it so they could get the trajectory and all those sorts of things. And there I am holding the guns used by Dillinger, um, pretty boy Floyd, all these different fantastic people. And you go and see all these things, but I'm sitting opposite a scientist that's what you know, he is a true scientist and he is such a brilliant, brilliant man, anyway. We go to trial. They test the the hair. There's, you know, the, the scientists said there's no doubt that this couldn't have been transferred any other way than personal contact. The kid gets found not guilty because um, the jury accepted that the underwear that this child was wearing um, and where she was assaulted was in an in an area where this suspect had previously urinated whilst fishing, and they found him not guilty. Oh dear. But on an upside, he went out within two days, committed a robbery, and got locked up for five years. Okay, karma. Karma indeed. Yeah.
1: So at the FBI
2: lab, did you get to shoot any guns? No. Oh. <laughs> did you put a request in? <laughs> you know that would have been absolutely brilliant. They, I mean, they've got they've got a range there. It's absolutely it's fantastic. It's state of the art. Um, but no, we didn't get a chance there. Have you shot guns? Yes. What, how did that come about? Well, that came about because. Um, I, I'm i quite a sociable sort of person, and um, I'm a bit of a networker. And we built a really strong network with one of the local RAF bases. And they invited us up there to have a look at the in-flight refuelers. We go up there, and they said, right, we're going to take you to the range now. And they gave us 50 rounds and a 9 millimeter gun, and we stood there <laughs> using it. So, yes, and I've, I have got guns as well. Yeah,
1: yeah. You've got guns now, presently? Yeah. And you're allowed to have guns, are Yeah, I
2: thought a gun, oh, uh, no, were... only shotgun. Only, shot... only a shotgun. Only shotgun. Are a farmer or something? <laughs> no, I, it, the, everything dies of old age and it will die of rust, but I've, yeah. got, I've got, it. got it.
1: Well, how do you have a gun in a country where guns are illegal?
2: Well, it's a, shotguns are legal. Shotguns are legal. Shotguns are legal. It's only the automatic weapons and the other types of guns that were used in Dunblane. When, when Dunblane sadly took place, they changed the legislation around guns. I, I have this conversation with Americans all the time. 'Cause we do a lot of work now with um different American former law enforcement, private eyes, things like that. They don't they don't understand any of this. But guns are effectively banned. You can have a hunting rifle, you can shoot deer, you can do your clay pigeon shooting, shoot game, stuff like that, but you cannot have automatic weapons or handguns or or the like. So so in America then you can just go into a shop and buy
1: a gun, a shotgun, for example. If shotguns are legal in this country, what's the procedure to get
2: one? So to to get one here, you apply for your certificate. It you goes through the chief constable. They do some medical checks on it, make sure that you you know you haven't got any issues, and then you'll get you'll get a shot, shotgun certificate. It is as simple as that. It costs you about I don't know 50, 60 quid now for a five. So bit.
1: criminal records, mental health records, you're going to get excluded from that.
2: Yeah, I mean if you've got convictions of a particular type and you've served a particular length of service, I used to know all this. Um, you you'll get excluded from having a shotgun, um, but yeah, I've got yeah I've got shotguns. How prevalent is gun ownership in this country? Then is it a very small amount? I don't think it's prevalent. I don't think it's that prevalent. There are yes, I live in the country. I don't shoot anything, but I've got a gun. You know, I go clay shoot clays. The difference between here and the USA is if the police happen to arrive at the scene of a crime and somebody presents a firearm then the chances are that that firearm is going to be illegally held. So it could be you know, a, a rifle or a handgun or something like that. The police know immediately what they're dealing with. The police in the USA, you can turn up. Everybody's got a right to bear arms. Therefore, how do you differentiate between a good guy and a bad guy? You know, And that's the thing. So, so look, you could go within five miles of here, walk into a pub, and there'll be somebody who will be able to get you a gun. There is of that. There is no doubt. You can. It, there is a market for everything, but the fact is that that gun will be illegally held, and as I say, at the states, you can just walk into a shop and buy it off the street.
1: Which system do you prefer? Ours. Ours. You think by that, far. You think that's safer?
2: Mm, by far. Absolutely by far. Look, knife crime is terrible. You could go and buy. Uh, well, we, we had it. We had a, a, a gentleman went and bought a knife in TK Maxx and killed his wife and son. You can you can buy a knife. You could take a knife out of your drawer. But we are so good with our gun laws here. Shotguns are all locked away. You have to make sure everything's done properly. Um, we have got a far better system, a far safer system for everybody. What are your thoughts on these high-profile
1: cases of people who've got guns and shot cops? There was the guy, what was it, Raul Mote? And there was one in Manchester that shot a female cop in Sydney too. What are your thoughts on
2: those cases? Oh, I'm a little bit draconian when it comes to that. Mm. I mean, I, I, do I believe in the death penalty? Yeah, for some cases I do, where, it, where it's literally beyond reasonable doubt. That's really controversial, um, but I make no apologies because actually um, I'm very passionate about policing. I still believe in what the police do. I, I I've met people from all walks of life and to take any life is absolutely outrageous but these people are doing their job they're trying to do their job they're trying to keep you and I safe and yeah I'm quite happy to debate the death penalty aspect because obviously once you've killed someone there's nothing there's no coming back and somebody has to do that but yeah I've got very strong views around it
1: what about knife crime in London do you have any answers to that
2: yeah, I do believe that we should get off of the fence around what the actual cause is around knife crime in London. I think that we're, we are, as a nation, pussyfooting around. This is... Every racist says that they've got a black friend, don't they? Every... Oh, yeah, I've got a black friend, a black friend. I've got black friends. I'm not racist. I'm a nothingist. If my son was walking down the street and he got searched, irrespective of his colour, sexuality, whatever, if he if he was searched... In order to prevent him from being hurt, or him from hurting somebody else, that should happen all day long. Really, again, that's really controversial. But I, uh, do you know what? When I, I worked. Um,
1: Comments are going to be going crazy on this video over our uh, debates.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they are. But y- y- you know, you know, that's what we want: stimulate a healthy debate. I'm, I'm, I'm up for, I'm up for debate. I know they're going to think I'm a, I'm a. You know, racist, sexist, whatever it is. But I'm not, I'm far from it. But I believe that everybody who carries a knife should be dealt with, irrespective of where they come from, they should be dealt with with the appropriate sanction of the law be- because it's too easy to kill someone.
1: What about root causes then? The government shutting
2: down youth centres and stuff like that? Hang their heads in shame. Community is everything, okay? So, but this isn't only a government, well, it is a government thing because the austerity issues have withdrawn the funding for policing for social care for all the things that we believe in without without having a a center without having a community there is there is no community go back and swing that old blue lamp again community policing started when you had houses in the community police houses in the community all right where you lived Where I lived, I lived in a police house. Everybody knew that's where the coppers were. Sometimes they'd be put in socially deprived areas to make sure that there was some maintenance kept around, but everybody knew it was there. Yeah, there was a
1: street nearby where I grew up that was a lot of police. It was police
2: housing, yeah. 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 You'd have village bobbies. The moment you take that away, you are ripping the heart out of the community because actually that is the focal point. The good, the bad, the ugly, that is the focal point for community. And a lot of these issues, I believe in supporting kids. As I said earlier on, I really do believe in that. Um, I'll go into schools. I'll, I'll help them do their CVs. I'll do whatever I've got to do because I believe. I don't want kids to go to prison. I don't want to go. I don't want my colleagues to go to any mother and tell them that their son has been murdered or that their son has been arrested for that murder that the 14-year-old child that's laying in the mortuary waiting to undergo the horrendous post-mortem has been killed by the 14-year-old who lived two streets away because of a dodgy drugs deal or he owed him 300 quid or whatever it may be. But the problem is that the the societies where it's happening, the black-on-black societies, because this is where... Look, that's, that's the fact. That's where the majority of the cases... Have, that's where the help is required. But help comes in different formats. So it comes from the community. It comes from positive policing and supporting the police. Give them the opportunity to undertake the job because you'll have people that will watch this now who may have been to prison, may hate the police, but do they want their kids to either be a victim or a suspect in one of these?
1: No, they don't. So in America, there's this thing called like the school-to-prison pipeline. So you take away the youth centers, show them all these videos that glamorizes crime, and then you know they think it's cool and end up in a private prison where they're making contracts in the tens of billions a year right now for these private prisons. Got prison guards unions and all these contractors lobbying, you know, to tighten laws and lengthen sentences. What do you think about the mass incarceration in America and the private prisons? One in hundred adults right now is in prison in America, mostly because of low-level drug offences?
2: The, the, their problems are different to ours. I will say that for a start. Um, I think their, their social deprivation is overwhelming in some areas. And you, it's a real... Look, we have it here. We have the haves and the have-nots. Um, I think we're more socially aware here than, than they are in the States, in some parts of the States. Um, it is outrageous that the, the prisons are seen as a money-making exercise. That 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 should never, ever be the case. But then I would say the same about the hospital system. And where does it stop? Does it then become a private policing so that the only people that can afford a police service are the ones with the money in their pocket? Mm-hmm. And therefore, the socially deprived areas, it'll be like Purge. They'll just get on with their own stuff. They'll be sorting out their own problems.
1: Like the Hunger Games eventually. Yeah. yeah. And that,
2: that can't
0: be right.
1: Mm-hmm. So you retired in December 2016. That's quite recent. Yeah. Probably all the ex-cops we've interviewed, that's the most recent. Do you have PTSD flashbacks, nightmares?
2: No. I have my memories. Um I think it's brought about you realise your mortality when you're dealing with all these types of things and you start to No, I don't I don't have a PTSD. I do know I have friends who do, and I you know, I understand why they do. Um there's only so many fatal road collisions and those poor buggers you know speak to a traffic man they're going there those people are still alive in the car you know and they're doing all they can to make sure that they stay alive and then so you know you have you been on the scene when they're still alive have i yeah well i have um but actually i was off duty i, I witnessed a fatal road collision a bloke got mopped up by a taxi outside a nightclub i'd only been in the police for a few weeks but do i have ptsd no how, do I seek solace in a bottle of, bottle of whiskey? No, not anymore. How, does they give you anything
1: like to deal with mental health? to when you go through extreme scenarios of people with the guts hanging out and dying and things like that.
2: They've now, they've now introduced a, a, a system where as a family liaison officer, cause that's quite stressful. You're sitting in a room with a family who, a bereaved family and they're, they're lovely. You know, majority of them are absolutely lovely. Um, and that's really stressful. And, and because of the frequency of the deployment, it could be that you'd have to be debriefed and, and they would welfare would give you a load of support around that. But I, I would, I can honestly say, and I don't know about other parts, but they're not brilliant at looking after the mental well-being of, of it. They will say they are. They'll have some social media campaign, you know, well, we're doing this and we're doing that. But the fact is that I know a number of people that are just left to languish and it's sad. So experiencing death
1: firsthand for so many years, does that give you an appreciation of life and yeah. the miracle of existence?
2: Yeah, I cry every time I speak to my grandson out in Australia, Oh, you know, I can't get to see him. He was born in December. Every time I see him on, um, Zoom or portal, whatever it is, yeah, I do. I get very emotional because the sanctity of, and I've got another grandchild being born this week, the sanctity of life. Is massive. Here am I saying I believe in the death sentence for certain cases, but the sanctity of life is so important. And make the absolute most. We're privileged. We've made it this far. There'll be people that won't have made it to. I'm fifty six next birthday. They won't have made it fifty six. You know. So I remember going to a murder, going to a mortuary, and my friend had just died of leukemia, and he was in the same mortuary. He was a policeman lovely lovely man and that you know that's quite um sobering
1: yeah my sister's little baby had leukemia but they saved her and that was a a sobering situation for the whole family so it's like you've been forced to become a stoic philosopher whereby you you know perhaps see people complain about little things and think if only you knew the value of what you've got.
2: Get on with it. Yeah, yeah. I would be, if I commented on everything that I just want to say shut up on on Facebook, <laughs> I'd be doing that all day long. You know, it's, I think former coppers are great because most of them like to engage, they like to talk to people, they're very forward-facing, customer-focused and all that, but they're also very cynical and, you know, that they they just want to say to people, just, you know, just, just, realize how lucky you are um the fact that you've still got your sky tv you've still got everything else that goes with it yeah you're having a terrible time but do you know what there's people who are having a really bad time going around arresting somebody right from a from a a nice background nice house and you're breaking that mother's heart you know and that mother doesn't want to know what their son or daughter has done but the fact is We're intruding in their lives. We're searching their houses. We're doing all these different things. Not only talking about death, but, you know, everything. So if you can go unscathed in life and never have to experience all those, you're bloody lucky.
1: Going back to something you said earlier then, um, hypothetically speaking, you've got a kid who kills another kid in London, life crime. Is it the role of the police to inform the family of the deceased? Did you ever have to do that? All the time. All the time. And you just show up and say, look.
2: Hello there. Can I come in?
1: And you know, I mean, oh, I had one. It was terrible. Do they know right away? that there's like a look on the faces? Well,
2: unless they're being arrested, why did the old bill turn up? Okay. The house? So you're in uniform, are you? No, I was, I mean, there was not, no. I had did it. I did have to do it. I'll start again. I, I had to do it in uniform. I remember the first one I had to do was a, a chap who died whilst diving. In Portsmouth Harbour, and he he died. And I had to go around and tell his son. And that was really sad, you know. Sunday evening, going around there and, and telling him, you know, really sorry, mate, but your, your dad's died in his mid 40s or whatever. Um,
1: have they just got into shock when you tell them.
2: Yeah. You know, is there any, have you got any neighbours? Um, can I make you a cup of tea? But you have to walk away, you know. So with some of these people, they haven't got any neighbours. Their nearest and dearest is, you know, in, in the northeast or wherever it may be. You've got to, you walk in, you deliver the bad news, um, and you walk out again, out of their lives. And the next time you see them might be at a coroner's inquest if, it's, if it goes that way. I remember telling one family on Christmas Eve.
0: Christmas Eve. Yeah,
2: that we found the body of their mum. That was awful and that will stay with me for the rest of my life. but it will stay with them for even
1: longer. On those uh, duties then, what was the youngest person you have had
2: to inform the family that they'd die? Um, Not particularly young, sort of early twenties, something like that.
1: Did you do anything
2: arresting pedophiles? No, I have, no, that never sort of came into my, my remit, if I'm honest. What
1: about rapists? Yeah. You got you put a few rapists away, yeah. Oh, they're going to love that in the comments.
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it's um the, the the problem is the judiciary, and it's well it's well documented. You have got time for this? You got yeah. Keep going. It's well documented that the amount of people that go to court for rape that actually get convicted, or the amount of people that it's dis- disproportionate, and it's I think that you know how how do you encourage victims to come forward? Um, and how do you elicit the evidence in order to make it a credible prosecution to get people to to be, you know, and so it's a very, very difficult situation, but yes, I have.
1: What do you think cases like, I watched this thing on Netflix, I think it was, Sins of My Father. I've never seen it. It's a Catholic priest, and he's got like hundreds of victims, some of them are babies, and they just bring in these really high-priced lawyers, and he's in and out in no time, and they're just moving him to another area. Yeah. What do you think about that versus... I went to the hemp museum in uh, Amsterdam, and on the wall there it said under three strikes laws in America, for weed possession, there's people doing twenty five to life, which costs the taxpayers millions. But that's
2: disproportionate to the offence, isn't it? You know, yeah. and we've all we've all got a view around sex offenders in within the church, whatever the church may be. Um, the problem you've got is that there's a um, the the culture around religion is that. The priest or whoever it may be can't possibly have done that because why would why would you as a child tell on because they've, they've been the most trusted person now. They need to get over that. They need to break down that barrier before they can because not every priest is a paedophile. Not every and and I I'm pleased to see that the churches are actually coming out against child sex offences. I think but there's more that they could do as a, as a group. Massively. It's just I don't know. It, it's a real difficult situation.
1: We've learned through our interviews that there are paedophiles who joined the priesthood now knowing
2: they'll have that legal protection from the high priced lawyers. Yeah. And that just that can't be right. I mean but the, the problem is in this country, so um position of trust, okay, which is what we're talking about. Everything else is covered apart from private tuition, private um sports coaches none of that's so all these people that have direct contact continual contact with young people there is no legislation wrapped around that element to protect them yeah it's 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 not right by by any stretch of imagination it does need to be dealt with and dealt with properly and the police and the authorities are i think they're getting better at it i think i think the dark web I don't know a great deal about it, but, you know, there's a massive market there um, for all types of illicit substances, guns, sex, whatever it may be. But I think the police are getting better at infiltrating, and so they should.
1: Do you think, then, there are some people who are above the law, and I'm talking the Epstein case, and the public and the viewers of these videos absolutely demanding that Prince Andrew should speak to the authorities and possibly be
2: investigated himself? Um, are they above the law? No, they're not above the law. But are they out of reach? I think that's the that's the difference. I think having having the opportunity to lean through and put your hand on their shoulder and pull them in to have a chat. Um I mean, I don't know sufficient about either case but um I mean there's m- some very serious
1: allegations made uh, by Virginia Guffey that she was sexually trafficked to Prince Andrew in London and also that he participated in, let's just say, activity on an island that involved um, East European girls who were underage.
2: And if that's the case, then he needs to, you know, he needs to be spoken to at the end of the day. Um, I think, and, you know, putting the measure in around that, you've got the issues around the the, the boy that was killed by the American diplomat's wife here. Yeah. You know, so it's it's... It's two-way traffic,
1: and to so we trade Andrew for her?
2: Well, but but you know you know what I don't I don't know that sufficient about that that case. Um, but
1: anyone else with, the, with such serious allegations would have been like SWAT team raided or something, and be facing a very
2: long period. Quite of, potentially, yeah. In prison, yeah. So it seems as a imbalance in, in there. But as I say, without without reading it and understanding it completely, but the issue you've got is. I know this is hypothetical, but you know, somebody's brought here. The age of consent is sixteen here. Age of consent in the States is 18 in some states, 21 others. You was it Rob Lowe got convicted out out there of um Oh yeah. I think it was. Was yeah. it something something like that? But yeah. you know, so what is law in one country isn't law in others. So there's a whole different types of you know, whole different areas to to look at. But as I say, you've got to look at it from both perspectives. You've got a, a diplomat that's killed a, a child, a boy, on a motorcycle and is not going to come back and face any form of court hearing. So what is it you do now? Uh, well, up until about two hours ago, <laughs> um, <laughs> I run a recruitment company for former police officers and military personnel. Wow. So we do everything from… What's that called? X job Ex-job. So if you're in the job, if you're in the place, you're in the job, when you retire, you're ex-job. Um, we set it up three years ago and we do services. So if you've got your own business, you can advertise with us for pennies a month. Um, And if you're looking for work, we try and find you work. So we do everything from COVID marshalling, drivers, right the way through to Middle East contracts. So would you like us to
1: put a link in the box below this video for people to reach out to XJob? Is that, is that possible? Yeah, we can put whatever links you want. We can yeah, put whatever cool. contact information yeah. you want. Are you on the
2: socials or anything like that? Socials, LinkedIn, the whole lot.
1: Well, you send us the links over and we will sure put them down yeah, there then. Yeah,
2: that's, that's brilliant. Thank you.
1: Is there anything you would like to say in conclusion to the people watching this video? No,
2: I'd just like to say thank you very much for, for listening to the rants of a 56-year-old... Balding, graying <laughs> man who can't get his hair cut properly or his beard <laughs> trimmed properly. Um, no, I've thoroughly enjoyed ex- the experience today. I'd just like to say thank you, thank you to the guys. Um, and if you know, I'm quite happy to go into open debate with people. I'm, I'm quite happy to p- have polite conversations. Oh well, well,
1: there will be a debate below this video in the comments if you want to join that. I'm sure there and will, and there'll be. be a premiere as well, whereby it is shown for the first time. And as
2: we're speaking. They're debating what we're speaking like. Really?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll send you a link for that. Yeah, too. Cool.
2: <laughs> cool. And, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm a nothingist, as, as I say, but I do believe that the, the elephant in, in the room in certain cases has to be thrown out.
1: And what's your preferred method of people contacting you? Uh, email's fine, social
2: media's not a problem. Okay.
1: So, huge thank you to Paul for coming on and Joe and James for filming this today. Uh, huge thank you to you guys. For watching this for the past two hours. Please let us know in the comments what you think. If you want to debate Paul, perhaps he may be down there responding to what you said because I know some of the things, some of the subject area we've roamed over today is gonna to trigger some people and they're gonna get they're gonna get really active in in the comments there. Right. Um huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen and huge thank you to people who've gone down the description box and clicked on all of our other links playlists socials donation links etc so to stave in the, the rules of the law we're going to do an elbow uh bump is it cheers oh, yeah, right. thank, thank you very much thank you yeah yeah absolutely brilliant Thanks. well done all right yeah it was fantastic